Hello, this is Martin Page and this is a Radio Owl's Nest special. This is the story behind my solo album, In the House of Stone and Light, released in 1994, my debut album. I'm going to go in-depth and uh, go back and remember all the different aspects of recording this album. I'm going to try and remember uh, how it all started, how it all developed and how it all ended. Uh, Try and get into the nitty-gritty of um, making this record. I hope I can remember some things that uh, I've never been spoken about before. Many things have been said about the album and the song in the House of Stone and Light. Hopefully I can bring to light some stories that haven't been told. I think 1987 is a pretty good place to start. Um, I was working with Robbie Robertson of band fame on his solo album. I was working with him up at a studio called The Village uh, in Los Angeles, a very famous studio. He had a room, Robbie had a room at the top of uh, The Village where he recorded and met people and did interviews and all that kind of stuff. But he had a great little studio and he was working on a solo record and I was put with him by Gary Gersh of Geffen Records to uh, write some songs with Robbie. I wrote Fallen Angel with Robbie and I wrote a song called Hell's Half Acre. But in that period, it became evident to me that um, I should make a solo record. Robbie kept on prompting me because I would bring demos up to him at the village and he said, there's something in these demos, there's something in your voice. You should definitely record your own solo record. At the same time, my manager, Diane Poncha, who um, had been encouraging me for the longest time to make a solo record, was saying, I think it's possibly the best time for you to do this. Why don't you make your first solo record? Well, I had been an artist back in the 80s with a band called Hughfield. We recorded a song called Dancing in Heaven, which was a hit in in, uh, Los Angeles, uh, an underground dance record. And from that moment on, when I came to America, I basically became a songwriter for everybody else. I became a backroom boy. And it became really um, a period for me from the 80s on to be supporting other artists. I was able to write We Built the City for Starship, These Dreams uh, for Heart, both with Bernie Taupin. And I wrote King of Wishful Thinking and um, Faithful would Go West. So I was thought of as the pop writer you went to. But around the edges, I was developing the concept that I would make uh, my own first solo record. Now, I always talk about this, that I had a trinity of great people that I was working with that time. Bernie Taupin, Elton's lyricist, Robbie Robertson, as I just mentioned, and Maurice White of Earth, Wind & Fire. These three people were um, so instrumental in pushing me forward to believe in making a solo record. So, yes, 1987, working with Robbie Robertson up at the Village uh, Studios. Um, I was encouraged and I believed now was the time and I was getting up there in age so I felt like my maturity was probably right. Making a record with Robbie Robertson was very different from writing pop songs for people. There was um, a real sense of we had to create something very emotional, very uh, intimate and uniquely spiritual. Robbie was working um, intimately in this small studio just on his own. And I thought, why don't I change my garage into a a professional studio? I put a Studer 24-track analog recorder in there with a Dolby SR system to make sure that the tape was as good as digital. And I put a big Soundcraft uh, 56-channel board in my garage. And I thought, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to try and write 
um, a truthful story about my life and put it on record. Now is the time. I'd had the hits with Bernie. I'd had the experience with Earth, Wind and Fire and Maurice White. And I was being, cur- being encouraged by um, Robbie Robertson and my manager. So 1987 is when I basically settled down into my garage to write um, this, this album of mine. And uh, there was a publisher called Bob Scoro who represented and worked with Bernie Taupin. And he said to me a long time ago, early 80s, whenever you, Martin, want to make a solo record, come to me. I'm sure he regretted that because one day I did knock on his door when he was working for Mercury Records. And I played him some demos. In fact, a song called Light in Your Heart that made it to the album and he's he signed me um he he was true to his word and i was signed to mercury records i was doing these demos in the garage which were becoming masters every track that went on eventually in the house of stone and light was a demo that i started in my house but in 1992 as well i released a song as a solo artist before i even released in the house of stone and light I had written a song uh, in that garage, uh, one of the songs that I was probably thinking about for In the House of Stone and Light, a song called Count On Me. And there was a movie being made called Gladiator, and uh, the people uh, involved with that movie wanted to put Count On Me on that record. And uh, I'd sung the demo, although I thought it was a master. And uh, they were thinking of having another artist to do it. In fact, it was the lead singer with Foreigner, Lou Graham, that they were thinking of doing it. But I thought, this is a great chance for me to um, make a statement myself. And I should sing Count On Me on Gladiator if, um, if they agreed to it. And they did. So my solo career as an artist started with the song Count On Me um, in the movie Gladiator. It was a great testing of the waters for me. Um, It made me feel like, yes, yes, it's time to put out uh, the real thing, a whole solo album. It was very important for me to make a record that I believed in and that I could sing and portray in all honesty. Um, There was a great temptation for songwriters that had had hits before to carry on doing that, putting their hits on their solo records, possibly their own versions. That wasn't for me. Um, After being so involved with the process with uh, Robbie Robertson and Maurice White, I felt very strongly that how I sang, how I portrayed my own songs was crucial to be absolutely believed in a lot of ways that I could I was the best portrayer of these songs I was going to write. I saw it in many ways like writing a book about um, your own experience. Writing the song Fallen Angel with Robbie Robertson, it literally took a year. And that really illustrated to me that however long it took, whatever it took, you had to look for emotion. You either had to laugh, cry, really feel a song. And so I basically locked myself in the studio, well, in the garage, and I wrote for around eight months, about 15 songs that I truly felt I could portray honestly and that I could sing. It was really about the character of the voice, something that I could handle, something that I could believe in. Um, It really comes down to the voice. I remember talking to Robbie Robertson and saying, I want to get some fantastic microphones in my studio. So he allowed me to use many of the tube microphones that came from the Village Recorder. 
and I chose a couple that seemed to suit my voice. I had Ed Thacker, a tremendous engineer that I'd worked with on Bernie Taupin's solo record. He came over to my studio and he set up the uh, mic chain, the analog chain, and tested my voice, and we chose the right microphone for certain songs. Uh, Ed was a great um, purveyor of analog recording. He'd worked with Supertramp, and uh, later on on the album, when we did live drums, Ed was involved with that as well. So I really tried to build a studio around me that um, could give me a sense of earth, um, analog deepness. I wasn't a great fan of um, high compression and uh, bright records. I was looking for soul. I was looking for deepness. And I think the time that I worked with Robbie Robertson in his small studio in the village, I had a sense that that's the way I should go. Intimacy. I'd learned how to engineer myself. I had a Studer 24 track and everything I needed to make a, a record that I felt had earth. It was incredibly imp important for me to be brave, uh, to write songs that people didn't really expect to come from me. Um, yes, I'd been known for writing the hit songs with many different artists, which was a wonderful apprenticeship, but I wanted to prove myself as an all-round musician. I was a bass player first and foremost, and, and an arranger, and I could get around keyboards quite well and play a bit of guitar. So it was ever so important for me to bring my history into this record in some way. And I felt in form with my voice. My voice over all these years had been changing and developing and I'd been around the greatest singers um, I could ever dream to be around. So I think a lot of it stuck to me and I started to believe in how I could sing, how I could portray lyrics. And lyrics themselves, I thought I have to write a record that um, lyrically, again, is true. Um, and was coming from my soul. It sounds grand, but that was the journey I was on at that time. I'd been around Bernie Taupin writing with him, so lyrically um, amazing, uh, and I was uh, stimulated to do better. And around Maurice White, how he would search for soul in the studio, how he would let musicians really portray the, their ability, let them loose. That was an incredible education for me. And around Robbie Robertson, looking to find the most emotional version of a track or of a song you could uh, ever find. So, as I said before, the Trinity, I felt like I'd been trained quite well. And also, there'd been a lot of sorrow in my life quite recently around that time. And uh, again, I think that was a very um, fortunate time for me to write these songs because I was going through um, a psychological change and really dealing with grief and dealing with the success I'd had as well as the realities of life. So to the writing of the album and the recording of the album I was going to continue in the fashion that I'd always worked which was writing demos and my demos usually grow into hopefully the masters. I was going to play all the instruments uh, at first, uh, the pads, the chords, uh, the bass, um, program the drums. At first I wanted to program the drums even though I knew that eventually a live drummer would be playing with a mixture of what I programmed. Um, we'll speak about that a little bit later. I knew that I was going to use many musicians that I'd worked with in the past on different projects and made friends with. 
So in the back of my mind, I was thinking about using uh, Bill Dylan, the guitarist I'd met during the Robbie Robertson sessions. He was um, an unbelievable player, and uh, we got on very well. And he had such a spiritual sense of playing guitar. I, I literally, up to that point, never heard a guitarist approach guitar playing the way that Bill Dylan did. And uh, when I made friends with Bill, I said, one day we're going to work together. So Bill Dylan was in the back of my mind. Neil Taylor, another incredible guitarist that I'd met. Uh, he played with uh, Tears for Fears, and I met him when I was recording uh, an album for Kurt Smith. And again, uh, from those sessions, an amazing drummer called Jimmy Copley, who um, I was very affected by, an amazing soulful drummer. So Neil Taylor and Jimmy Copley sort of came as a package together, and I knew I wanted to use Jimmy on uh, the live drum tracks. Uh, I've stated it many times that one of the bands I was very affected by in the 80s was a band called the Blue Nile from Scotland. Um, I met up with them uh, after they recorded their first solo album. I made it uh, an absolute mission of mine to uh, get nearer to them. I bought their album in a cheap uh, record store. It was uh, in a bargain bin and uh, I heard this album, uh, Walk Across the Rooftops. The cover really captured me and at that time I was looking to expand uh, my musical uh, influences. I wanted to listen again to music that was coming for England, uh, Cocteau Twins, Prefab Sprout, and the Blue Nile just knocked me over. And uh, I got, got my manager, Diane Poncher, to search out the Blue Nile. And after we worked out their accents and knew what they were saying, we met with them in Los Angeles. And from that friendship, PJ Moore, their uh, incredible sound designer and keyboard player, I wanted him on in the House of Stone and Light, and he contributed. Um, very outstanding keyboards to this project and of course I was going to use my uh, QPhil partner my songwriting partner from right at the beginning of my career Brian Fairweather I wanted him to be involved he understood how I worked he understood what I looked for and so Brian also as a guitarist was involved and I was playing a lot of guitar myself and a lot of those guitar parts made it as the keyboards parts did, as the drum programming did, and as the bass parts did. They made it onto the final record. There was a great, great um, low singer, a Ugandan singer called Jeffrey Oriema that I'd um, met through meeting Peter Gabriel. And I thought his voice would be particularly wonderful on the album. And he was utilized on a few tracks. Uh, he had such a great tone with mine. And uh, in fact, on the actual title track, In the House of Stone and Light, you'll hear Jeffrey Oriema uh, adding his beautiful, very low, rich tones. Uh, a drummer from my early days from QPhil, a great friend of mine, Trevor Thornton, he also got involved with the on the album. I wanted to have him involved, and he played great, great drums on a song called In My Room, very personal song, and he added some drums to the final song on the album, The Door. He also added the tribal side sticks on the song Keeper of the Flame. Now, quite incredibly, um, I met with Phil Collins um, by accident. I was in a restaurant with my manager on Sunset Boulevard, actually Bernie Taupin's uh, restaurant, and across from my table, there he was, Phil Collins with his wife, and uh, he was chatting away, and I thought, well, my goodness me. Uh, I was a Genesis fan from the beginning of time. I always thought that Phil was one of the most musical drummers that came out of that prog rock uh, period. 
So, I, um, with my big mouth and the way I feel about um, telling people that how good they are, I made my way over to Phil's table and he was uh, like we'd known each other for years and I just started talking to him saying that I was a writer here and the songs I'd written and he was very, very friendly and um, then I mentioned to him that I was working on my own album and that Blue Nile were involved and I've been working with Robbie Robertson and I brought the Blue Nile into the Robbie Robertson album and Phil said, oh my goodness, the Blue Nile are the epitome of the best band in the world and he was so um, into them very fortunate that I mentioned them and, he, and I said well Phil as I would do <laughs> do you want to play on my record and being Phil he said of course because Phil is that kind of man and uh, he's so open and so uh, normal and we got on and uh, he said he would love to play on a record that involved uh, PJ Moore and uh, a feeling of the Blue Nile. And in fact, I'll tell you a story about the Blue Nile and Phil Collins a little later on in the show. Anyway, I'd recruited Phil Collins and uh, he eventually uh, called me two days later and he drove over to my house and he listened to the songs on my album and said, I love this. And he practiced his drums on, on his kneecaps in my kitchen. We uh, really bonded and it was set up that he would play on Lighten Your Heart I was made for you, and he was going to have a go at Shape the Invisible, uh, these songs. Now, I'm jumping forward. Obviously, I'd written some of these songs by then. But just to say, Phil Collins was involved, and I thought, that's a good call um, for the record company. They'll like to see that I've got some important names on the record. And an important name was Robbie Robertson, and he'd been the man that had encouraged me uh, early on to make this record. And Robbie said he'd love to be involved, so um, he also played guitar particularly on in the, in the House of Stone and Light, the title track. That was a wonderful gift. And then my good friend uh, Jack Hughes from the band Wang Chung. We'd written together in the past, and I always felt like it would be great to have him involved. And he was involved on guitar and some vocals as well. So it was uh, the, ba the actual players that were coming together were the perfect players for me. And I think the record company would have been quite happy with a few of the names that were getting involved. And because this was my first record, I thought we could do with a bit of that. That'll help me when I have to promote this record. But I did have for me the dream team. I mustn't forget here, there was a, a wonderful singer and a wonderful songwriter, Brenda Russell, who I'd met a few times in my songwriting journeys around Los Angeles. Lovely lady. And I thought, well, it would be wonderful to have her singing uh, the song Light in Your Heart with me, so she adds some wonderful vocal flavour to that song. But I did have, for, for me, I had the dream team of players. Now, for the songs, the songwriting and the demoing. Uh, I must mention here, there was a great young engineer called Jeff Lorenzen, who helped me uh, with uh, getting the room set up for guitars to be recorded, and stayed close to me for uh, some of the uh, editing and... Um, some of the organization of the beginning and the end of this record. Now for the writing of this record I felt very strong that I had to be on my own, um, cut everything off because I had been writing with so many people, producing people. It seemed to me if I was going to get something real in this album I had to shut the doors down, bat down the old hatches and stay quite secluded. Um, solitude was needed to find out really what I needed to write. Um, I'd reached out to Bernie Taupin and said, yes, I'm gonna make this album. And uh, he graciously uh, sent me along two 
lyrics that he wrote for me uh, that ended up being Light in Your Heart and Monkey in My Dreams. So that was great. I had Bernie um, contributing and helping me on this record. But really, I settled down um, like a monk, really, at this studio in this uh, little submarine where I'd put the 24-track and the board and all the amplifiers and the keyboards, and I just experimented. I experimented with sound, and I experimented with my emotions musically. What was I about? You know, what was I going to contribute um, if I was going to make a record? And so I, th I thought very deeply about where I'd come from, what I loved uh, in art, uh, what life and love meant to me, uh, family relationships, all relationships. And I tried to take that in under my skin and uh, see if something came up. I felt somehow that the songs had to be quite simple, that um, musically they just had to be quite pure. Um, and there, was, there needed to be a sense of where I came from, which was really <laughs> the s south coast of England. So there was a, definitely a sense of um, rural and folk mixed with funk. When I say funk, it's because I went to America as a young lad and fell in love with bass guitar and uh, bands like, you know, Parliament, um, Sly and the Family Stone, Earth, Wind and Fire, who I eventually worked with, Rufus. And so I thought, what a strange mixture here, this kind of um, folk, South Coast, Celtic um, folk feel mixed with um, rhythm, rhythm from uh, the South of America, the South States where I'd uh, been with my father as a child. This mixture seemed to me that something I should investigate. It's a strange concoction really when I think about it, but also as a young lad, uh, Records were my best friends, so I grew up on lots of pop music, lots of progressive music, lots of uh, fusion music, lots of um, funk music. So I thought, I've got to try and dip into the melting pot and pull some of that out when I write these songs. And of course, reggae music in the 70s when I was growing up became very, very important to me. So. This melting pot <laughs> had a lot of colours in it. Um, I think this is a good uh, place to talk about the title track because the title track um, influenced how this whole album was going to develop. Before I started the album, um, I went to the Grand Canyon. I needed to get back to nature. I've been working so hard and so consistently in the studios in Los Angeles that I burnt myself out and I thought I was losing myself, my, my vision, um, my sense of what really made music important to me. So I thought it was the right time to escape and to get back to the earth as such and uh, so I took a train ride down to the Grand Canyon and uh, I spent some days there. Very fortunate to go to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, um, a helicopter ride which I must admit I didn't quite enjoy, but when we uh, landed, it was something like about 120 degrees, and uh, I did get a bit of sunstroke at the bottom of the canyon. But I remember meeting um, and seeing the Havasupai Indian tribe that lived at the bottom of the canyon. Very inspiring to me, and I learnt that they called the Grand Canyon the House of Stone and Light. That was their name for the Grand Canyon. And that struck a chord in me, and I thought I've got to take that title back to my home studio and develop something about that. So I didn't really know what it meant to me, but it just struck me. And sometimes you get a gut feeling that when 
something strikes you like that, something meaningful is going to take place. Eventually, when I was back in my home studio, I did feel revitalized. And um, I looked at that title that I'd written down in the House of Stone and Light. And I thought this really means to me, the house is my body. Um, I thought I've got to get my house in order. So I thought the House of Stone and Light, stone represents strength and I need that. And light, I certainly need to be uh, letting light into my life. So the House of Stone and Light basically represented to me a vision of myself. And I knew that writing in the House of Stone and Light would be a healing uh, process. And I also knew straight away it was going to be a restoration song. House was one of the first songs I wrote for the record. And that was quite quickly followed by a song called Shape the Invisible and a track called I Was Made For You. It seemed that House had um, inspired the colour, the nature of where this record was going to go. It was great to have a sense of what the landscape was. And I um, quite quickly felt like I knew that I was touching something which was um, my own style, uh, my own feel, and again, my own nature. So um, that early breakthrough within the House of Stone and Light set the tone. I've always felt like uh, albums are like making movies and that sequencing of songs and uh, the taste of the songs are really important and the moods must change, but you want to retain the colour of the project. So even as I was writing early on, very scrappily, um, purely phonetic vocals, I like to just make sounds with my voice. I just thought I need to keep the colour I uh, keep on using the word colour, but it was the smell, the taste of this album. Somehow, even though it changes moods, it must retain its taste. As I mentioned, I always do phonetic vocals, sounds. I like to jam. I like to create melodies on the spot. And then I will re review over a period of time um, if any of these melodies, any of these sounds uh, make sense. Lyrics are the hardest for me, so um, I'm very, very grateful if uh, titles and phrases appear out of the air. And uh, a lot of that did happen on In the House of Stone and Light. Over the eight months or so that I was writing this record, I, was ma I would make millions of dat and millions of cassette roughs. And I would constantly listen to how the songs were developing. To me, it was almost like, I suppose, uh, training a football team. You know, the songs were growing, they were getting stronger, or they weren't getting stronger. And over a sense of time, I'd learned this through experience, is time is the greatest collaborator. The more time you get to study something, um, not even intently, but just playing it in the background, you get a sense if something really has the legs to go the distance. And so this project for me was all-consuming and it wasn't being rushed and it was being um, felt and that's the greatest word really, I was feeling it. So I was constantly making roughs to listen to in the car, uh, on the headphones when you're just walking down the street and playing to my executive producer which was Diane, my manager, Diane Poncher and she would give me amazing feedback. Over time certain songs just fell away and other songs just seemed to uh, flower. I'd learnt uh, through all the years, particularly working in America uh, with Maurice White, um, particularly, that you let music speak to you over time. 
and you let uh, emotions uh, dominate your decisions. And slowly, um, these 15 <laughs> songs I'd written came down to 12. And then I thought, 12, too many. We need to bring it down to 10. Um, I felt like a football manager thinking uh, we have to drop two players. And that's a hard decision because you've lived with these songs for a long time. There were two songs, one called Each Man Kills the Thing He Loves. And there was another song called When the Harvest Is In. Both these songs did different things for me and added different things to the album, but uh, those two didn't quite make the final cut and uh, the picture was beginning to take shape. Those uh, initial 15 songs, down to 12, now down to 10, uh, I believed I had the album. Um, one thing to mention here is I kept the record company, Mercury Records, as far away from me as possible. Too many cooks can spoil the broth and I'd had so much experience with lots of artists uh, during my time that uh, suffered record companies getting involved in the creative process much too early on. So with my manager, I sort of um, kept the A&R men uh, at bay. It was almost like a castle throwing down hot oil. Stay away, stay away. <laughs> but uh, they were very good. And Bob Scoro um, respected that I needed to create uh, on my own. I think he popped in once with um, Ed Eckstein and they listened to some music. And uh, luckily they were suitably impressed to leave me alone and leave me to my own devices. Um, so I had the 10 songs. So I'll take this time now just to briefly talk about each song, um, just to give you a, a sense of where the um, spirit of the song came from. Obviously each song could have a, <laughs> a long chat in itself, but uh, just to keep uh, us moving along here, I'm just gonna briefly talk about the songs in the order that they appeared on the album. Early on I knew what the sequence of the album was going to be, that's something that I've always felt. As I've been listening to the songs, I, I put them into place and sense where they're going to be in the movie as such. So the opening track was going to be In the House of Stone and Light. Well, you know a bit about that song already. It was a restorative, uh, healing song for me. And a, a lot of spiritual overtones, even the first line, O Mount Kylos. Uh, that was a phonetic vocal, a sound at first. And uh, eventually, O Mount Kailas meant a lot to me because it was a sacred mountain in Tibet uh, on the border of China where many pilgrims would come and walk around the mountain and they would leave clothes behind to simulate the action of leaving their sins behind or their past life behind. At this point, I'd been studying a little bit of Buddhism and uh, that was infiltrating into my way of thinking. And so in the House of Stone and Light isn't one particular spiritual reference not relating to one single uh, religion but basically a spirit of um, of oneself the second song on the album was shape the invisible i've spoken about this before um, that its inspiration came from reading uh, about leonardo da vinci and i read somewhere that when he was creating he said he felt he was shaping the invisible and i felt like um, that's a wonderful statement about trying to shape the future 
trying to shape the future um, in the best way possible. And that's how I wrote this song. It was a wish song, a wish song for peace. The third song, I Was Made For You, is a very simple song. I seem to be reaching back into my kind of uh, Celtic Gaelic uh, sense of uh, my upbringing. Living on the coast, living near the sea, something was speaking to me about folk music and folk music meeting electric music, uh, the sea meeting the land. And also, I'm really a romantic, so um, a lot of the books I was reading at that time, I was reading about the romantic poets. And I, this is really where I was made for you came from, a feeling um, of love. Song four was Keeper of the Flame. This basically came together out of rhythm. I remember starting this song and just finding the, this, uh, this rhythm that really informed the whole song. And from that rhythm, I was playing bass guitar, which seemed to be very reggae-influenced. Again, I was trying to write simplicity, so the, the, the chords were very simple, but the bass was really quite um, Jamaican reggae and unusual with this drum rhythm. And uh, I've always been a great believer in trustworthiness and being able to rely on somebody, somebody you could really lean on. So uh, that's what Keeper of the Flame really is all about. Song five is a song called In My Room. And I was, even though it's the day of CDs and downloads, I was still thinking of albums uh, that one side would probably finish on track five and then uh, side two would start with, side, with track six. So um, that was still in my blood, that formula. In My Room is possibly the most um, personal uh, song on the album. It's a story about my mother when she uh, was a young girl. Her father used to come back uh, from the pub in England and uh, be very drunk and take it out on uh, my mum's mother. And my mum was uh, forced to hide under the stairs when they knew uh, that the uh, drunken father was coming home or in an adjacent room and locked the door. But she heard uh, the beating of her mother. My mum related this story to me uh, very late in her life and I asked her if I could portray it. Um, and she said yes. But uh, she couldn't listen to the song uh, much when I finished it, even in, in the early days, because she said it brought back so many tough memories. She still dreamt about um, those occurrences even very late in her life. When the album was released and this song appeared, I got so much mail and such great feedback from women that had been abused. Um, it meant a great deal to me, so I'm glad that that song and my mother allowed me to put that song on the album. Track six, which would be, I suppose, the beginning of side two in my mind. Monkey in my dreams, uh, one of the lyrics that Bernie Taupin wrote for me for this record. Well, as soon as I saw the lyrics, um, I just knew the track had to be fiery. And starting side two, I'd always had the um, feeling in my mind that we needed to pull the energy right up straight after the um, mood of In My Room. So Monkey In My Dreams became really the start of what I would say the second part of the album. We needed energy and Bernie's lyrics were so um, animated, uh, visual and bitter and a sense of humour there as well. So really this track for me was just like lighting a fire and letting it go with uh, sparks. 
Track seven, a song called Put On Your Red Dress, Pure Romance, Pure Romance, uh, somehow again linked to the sea. I was uh, born very near the, the docks in Southampton, so I had a real sense of uh, being near the sea, and somehow that felt very romantic to me. Um, I think a lot of us in our lives have had those moments when you want to make up with somebody, you want to say, I'm sorry, and uh, let's just try and forget about it for one moment in time, maybe um, take a walk together, um, try and refresh a relationship. Well, to me, it was very much uh, what this song was about, like, let's try and start again. Uh, I wrote a lyric in there called St. George's Bay. Um, I didn't know if there was a St. George's Bay. I'm sure there was. But my middle name was George, and I thought, that sings pretty well. But this is a, basically a song about starting again. So to track eight, um, a song called Broken Stairway, a very short song, a very intimate song. I basically just wrote and we recorded the song with me on the small Yamaha white piano I had in my home studio. Broken Stairway was relating to a very tumultuous relationship in my life. Um, I was writing about jealousy. I was writing about failure. I was writing about confusion. Uh, that a relationship could only get to a certain point on a staircase if jealousy and uh, untrust was involved. I remember that it was one of those songs that I wrote extremely fast. I remember just sitting down at the piano and literally the song came out, including a lot of the lyrics at the same time. It's very rare, but I think it was um, an outpouring of emotion. And Broken Stairway is basically a testament to um, an unhealthy union, the struggle of relationships when they just cannot move to the next stage. So, to track nine. Light in Your Heart it was the second song that Bernie Taupin um, wrote for me for this album. And uh, again, as soon as I glanced at the lyrics, um, I felt musically what I had to do. And that was to be uplifting. And it's, as Bernie has said in a few interviews, it's a very simple song from the heart. I do feel that it's um, got a lot of beauty in the melody, a simplistic beauty. It seems to have been one of those songs that um, has always communicated and touched people. It's a very interesting lyric because the chorus is, again, very simple and straightforward from the heart. But the verses are very intriguing as well. A great thing about this song was uh, that Phil Collins uh, played drums on it. And it was a song I was struggling with uh, when I was recording it. And then as soon as Phil got involved, he... Um, saw how to portray the track. Uh, whenever I think of Light in Your Heart, I think of brightness uh, of soul, and I also think of Phil Collins playing drums at A&M Studios on the track. And so did the final track, track 10, a song called The Door. This song relates to the 300 Jewish prisoners that escaped uh, Treblinka in 1943. Treblinka was a German Nazi extermination camp based in Poland. It was solely a camp just for killing. Uh, one day I was walking around my little library and I just stared up and saw a book straight away just called Treblinka that I remember buying uh, in a cheap bookstore 
uh, a few years before, but I've never read it. But there it was. And I just took that book down. For some reason, I had to read it. And it made such an impression on me. Uh, this song appeared. The bravery of the uh, prisoners to try to revolt was one of the first times ever that uh, Jewish prisoners had tried to escape. They were inspired by the Warsaw Ghetto uprising and they were very, very, very brave. I wrote the song through the eyes of a survivor, a grandmother, a fictional character of mine called Hannah, who was looking back at her grandchildren and uh, reliving the escape uh, and that she could see in her grandchildren the reason for her escape. Sometimes you write a song and it doesn't really feel like a song. It feels like a piece or a statement. It doesn't seem to have the rules or, or the laws that a normal song should follow. It was that way with the door. I remember that the 3-4 rhythm just felt so rhythmically walking, walking towards, um, you know, a new life. There was something about the pulse of the song that felt like longing, pushing, trying to get away from something. And to me, the door represented uh, the prisoner's choice to open the door to freedom and not the door uh, to the gas chambers. And when we played this song live, um, there was such a reverence for the song. So uh, especially when I played it in Germany live, um, it was a very special occasion. And you definitely felt from the audience a sense of the gravity of the song. So those are the 10 songs on the album. Uh, starting within the House of Stone and Light and finishing with The Door, it always felt to me I was still writing about a house. Somehow the book ends of this uh, record, starting within the House of Stone and Light and finishing with The Door, just felt right. Well, there's still such a lot to talk about regarding In the House of Stone and Light. This seems like a perfect place to finish part one of the story. In part two, I'm going to talk about what it was to record the lead vocals on these songs after the lyrics were written. Also, uh, what was really important to me was to get the rhythm section. Jimmy Copley and myself, drums and bass. That's the skeleton of the album. And I felt before anything else, I had to get the skeleton, the foundations of the house right. And there was a big preparation for that I'd like to tell you about. Also bringing in all the players, all the different musicians that came to my home studio. I'll have some memories of, of that. And a great collaboration with um, Jeffrey Oriema, who I'd met through Peter Gabriel and the WOMAD tour. I'll also tell you about um, the recording of uh, Phil Collins when uh, Phil Collins joined us. And uh, quite an interesting story of how the Scottish band Blue Nile and uh, Phil Collins uh, got together in a studio in Los Angeles. I'd like to tell you about that. And it's about a time when my house, where I lived, every aspect of that house became a recording studio. Every aspect of my personal life became the album. I hope you'll join me for part two of the story of In the House of Stone and Light. I look forward to uh, taking you through the remaining rooms as we finish the house. This is Martin Page saying goodbye.